Episode 68, All My HIE and HISP, H-I-S-P, Questions Answered by Teresa Rivera of Utah Health Information Network. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Teresa Rivera is a wellspring of knowledge about HIEs and HISPs. While explaining the past, present, and future of UHIN, the Utah Health Information Network, Teresa masterfully takes on my random onslaught of questions about pharmacy and LTC involvement in HIEs, and also she explains exactly what a HISP is. This show is the third in a series of interviews I'm conducting this fall with HIEs around the country. What is becoming very obvious is, despite their similarities and common mission, it's how unique each HIE is and how different each of my conversations has been. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin Healthcom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Teresa. Well, thank you, Stacy. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about UHIN. You are one of the oldest HIEs in the country. We are. We are. And we're proud to have that distinction. And you're doing some actually really interesting. Well, let, let's just put it this way. Your evolution has been very interesting because you started out as a clearinghouse, if I understand correctly. That is correct. We started in 1993 as a clearinghouse for our Utah community. Our community came together and said there has to be a better way for us to connect payers with providers and providers to payers that would be an inexpensive but standard way that we can communicate electronically. So they formed our organization. We are a community organization, a not-for-profit organization, and worked and focused on the claims and payment transactions. We call it administrative transactions since uh, for 1993 up to about 2007. Could you just explain for those of us who aren't necessarily in that side of the business exactly what does a clearinghouse do? A clearinghouse helps facilitate the claims from providers. These are the bills that they would complete for reimbursement, and we help facilitate getting those claims electronically from the provider to the payer. Then once the payer has processed the claims, we send reports back to the provider indicating the processing status or payment status. So there is some transformation that happens in between then. We're monitoring the transactions to make sure that there is a smooth transition of those claims going back and forth. At the time... And 1993 was a long time ago. But was the idea to make simply a clearinghouse or was there a grand vision at that time that the clearinghouse could be the basis for more of a health information exchange? There was some vision that we, that our organization could help support quality effort. I don't know if they saw that clinical was going to come this quickly and this robust, but clearly they felt that this would, having a community-based clearinghouse would reduce the costs and then implementing standards 
would also reduce everyone's costs. So they knew what to expect and what to send. And so we did start as standards development organization, working on those clearinghouse standards, those administrative standards for our community to follow. As I think about it, a clearinghouse, just because of the mere fact that you have to have area providers, all of them, and area payers connected together, regardless of whether it was intended or not, you do have the basis for what many later health information exchanges probably struggle with the most. You are right, Stacy, and that is exactly what happened. So in 2007, our community got together and said, this is great. This has worked great for us. It's very successful for us to transact administrative transactions. Let's do this on the clinical. And this is even before a lot of the clinical ARA funding was coming about. They wanted to get together and say, we could do some really good things as far as connecting the clinical. And we know how to do it. We know that standards help. We know how to connect providers. We know how to receive data. So we thought, we in the community thought, it would be a very small leap to get to that. And now, was, it, was it a small leap? <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, after uh, <laughs> we did have underestimate that because the clinical transactions, the administrative transactions use formats based on what we call X12 standards. Clinical transactions use standards based on HL7 formats. Typically, the connections on the clearinghouse side had evolved to what we call web services connections. The clinical transactions typically are in a secure VPN environment. The administrative exchange transactions are handled by the biller. The clinical transactions are handled by the healthcare professionals like the medical assistants, nurses, and physicians. So you have those differences. However, you still have the same basic tenant that can clinical transactions be exchanged to improve the quality of care, coordinate care between disparate providers at a low cost, at a not-for-profit? And the answer is yes. We were fortunate enough that we had the providers, hospitals, and payers at the table. So one of the hardest things when you're starting a health information exchange is the governance. And we had succeeded in that piece because they had come together and, and put down their competitive forces to be able to exchange administrative transactions. We just used that to move to the clinical transactions. I could see how you definitely had a head start with the right players at the table, but I also definitely, it's resonating what you were talking about before you had administrators that were primarily communicating back and forth, whereas now you've got providers of actual medical care whose behavior sort of has to change. And now you're getting into other areas, for example, of the EHR. Did you still have a great ramp up trying to get doctors to put the information into the, the HIE and then knowing when to go in to extract it? I could see how that you might not have had that much of an advantage in that area. 
it is a different process. And so we continue to work through that. Our strategy was to work with the entities that had the largest amount of data. And so we did work with the hospitals first and the large clinics. They had, uh, I wouldn't say the easiest time, but they had an easier time because they typically will employ their own IT staff. Uh, the smaller offices, we spend more time with because we're reaching out, trying to help them as much as possible. What did you try? I mean, were, were any of your tactics or strategies to make that possible, were any of them very successful or very unsuccessful? I think one of the most successful tactics was we do not charge for them to connect and contribute data to the HIE. Uh, however, their vendor will sometimes charge them. So we tried to set aside some community funds to offer connection grants to help them help mitigate that cost for our provider group, especially for the small providers. While they really want to connect, they see the value for their patients to be able to have that data that can follow the patient. It is a cost to them. And, and sometimes they have very, uh, especially the small ones, have a very low margin. So by having those connection grants really did help assist them to get connected. What about the payers? Have payers seen, do, do payers contribute to this at all? I mean, I could see how it would be an advantage to them for certain maybe high-risk patients to have everybody connected. It is absolutely an advantage. And the payers have jumped on board with their support and their interest in helping case manage those patients. It's interesting. We've got a couple of payers that have really pushed through on the case management side. And one in particular, it works with Medicaid patients. And they receive notifications on these patients that receive emergency care on a regular basis. We call them frequent flyers into the emergency department. They put them on a panel and when they get and subscribe to notifications from us, when that patient enters into the emergency room, they're able to know real time that the patient is in the emergency room and meet the patient at the emergency room. Now, Many times, these patients that are the frequent flyers are there not because of healthcare alone, but because of social issues. And so they've implemented a program called Care Connectors, where they're working with these patients on the social aspects. Very difficult when you have a patient that needs home IV, if they're homeless, to have home IV. And so they need to work through all of those processes and connect them with the appropriate social service so they can get that patient back to good health. You've got a payer, you know, a Medicaid provider, as you said, who has care coordinators or, or care, care case, connectors, care connectors, case managers. And what they are doing is they have access to, as you said, they, they have a panel of patients or a cohort of patients, which anytime that cohort of patients does something which is in need of an alert or that they decide that they need to know, then they are alerted so that they from the payer side can address. Did I state that correctly? You did. You did. Another example that they've helped with is that they have patients, they track patients that are asthmatic patients, 
when they are also admitted to the emergency room department. And I didn't know this, but when you're an asthma patient and you have an acute episode and you're in the emergency room, you are prescribed medication out of the emergency room, but it's for the acute episode. It doesn't put you in control of your asthma. So they follow up with the patient to make sure that the patient is getting the medication that they need to control their asthma so they prevent a future acute attack. They've been very deliberate in where they can assist the patient. And in fact, one of the payers found that they saw an increase in emergency room visits for their asthmatics, and they had made a change in their pharmacy list. And what would they pay for? And they wanted to, they had to go back and make sure that they had the correct medication on there. So all these patients or their asthmatic patients are able to get the correct medication to keep them out of the emergency room. Was that result of that pharmacy formulary change made more evident because of UHIN and the fact that all that data was aggregated? It was. It was. So maybe they wouldn't have figured that out had the... Absolutely. Absolutely. But let me give you a different example where providers are also using these notifications. We have a behavioral health provider that has a cohort of patients. Again, this is Medicaid. And they monitor their high-risk patients. And when they have a high-risk patient that's been admitted to the either the emergency room or inpatient, they are notified real-time. They will go to the hospital, meet with the hospital to make sure that their behavioral health services, medications are well coordinated with that medical incident in the hospital. This just has made me kind of meander in in, in a direction here, some of the things you're talking about. Because here's the thing. I actually interviewed two people, two tech entrepreneurs that have companies, one of them when you were talking about the the asthma patients, just reminded me of this. What he has a technology to do is to check how people are using their rescue meds, for example, because exactly mm-hmm. like you just said, if people are using their rescue meds too much, that pretty much indicates they're not taking their daily medicine and they're not in control of their asthma. Mm-hmm. And then I interviewed another guy, uh, Stan Burkle, actually from Sense Health, that has a whole texting protocol around, for example, behavioral health Medicaid patients, and it enables case managers to send a series of text messages out to help manage Medicaid patient populations that might have some mental health issues. Just in general, if I'm a tech entrepreneur with a service like one of these, is there any opportunity to interact directly with an HIE or would my best path be to go to a provider who has access to the information already and then somehow integrate via that conduit? It would probably be in their best interest on the first one that is the rescue meds to work with the payer or the ACO in those cases is at that point they are trying to reduce the costs. Now, once they've initially worked with them, they may, the payer or the ACO may say, well, we want you to get the data directly from the HIE and we're going to authorize you to have that data. In the second case, it may be more valuable to work directly with the provider because the provider wants to communicate directly with the pay, uh, with their patients. Again, the provider can authorize them to work directly with us, um, and we would push the data to them. So we 
typically keep our focus to taking, providing data to those that have a right to have that data under HIPAA, which is for treatment, payment, or operations. However, those entities do contract with technical innovators, um, as the two you mentioned, and they will authorize us to go ahead and put this aggregated or send this aggregated data to those entities. The data that I would then receive as that tech provider would be limited to the patients that were under the wing of that provider, for example. That is correct. Uh, One thing that the HIE is responsible for is protection of the data. Um, We do not want um, that data to um, be used beyond the HIPAA protocols, as well as beyond what a patient would expect. We believe one that needs to try to protect that data as much as possible, as much as any provider or payer would. And would you open a separate portal, for example, so that the tech provider could directly get into the HIE, you know, your data set? Or would that, once again, have to go through the provider? So in other words, the tech entrepreneur would go through the provider's portal somehow and then get into the aggregated data set. We would open up a separate connection, but we have the ability based on that connection to limit the data. So for example, we have a couple of payers today that use a case management organization. They don't, they outsource that. And so those, that case management organization is able to see the data only for those patients that that payer has authorized them to look at. Thank you for for clearing up that mystery. This is something that I have wondered for quite some time. (laughs) Here's another mystery for you, my friend. (laughs) Okay. Talking about pharmacies, how are pharmacies linked in this whole operation, if at all? They are not linked in as, as of yet, but they are starting to work on that. They want to, as you know, pharmacies do more than just fill prescriptions. They do additional services, immunizations, and some brief urgent care. And so as they expand their role, they do want to connect with the HIEs. Right now, we do not have any connected, but we have a couple in discussion to start a pilot plan. And they are very interested in not only being able to put in data for services they've rendered, like an immunization, a flu shot, but also to be able to make sure that they can coordinate the medications. Medication reconciliation is a real important benefit of health information exchange. As patients move from one care setting to another care setting, it is so important that the medications that they are taking are clearly communicated to that next setting. Those medication errors are costly to our whole healthcare system. So despite the fact that the pharmacies aren't at this moment connected, the providers themselves are putting in the drugs that they are prescribing so that everyone in, you know, who's helping uh, care for that particular patient can see the full set of what everybody else prescribed. That is exactly right, Stacy. In those records that either the physician or the hospital is providing is a medication list that they've reconciled with the patient. And so they're able to see the last reconciliation list um, that the provider completed with that patient. Okay, so this takes me to another burning mystery. So obviously you are my my oracle this morning. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> what if the patient does not pick up the medicine? Because the pharmacy is not connected, would the HIE have any insight into, you know, for example, how adherent that patient is actually? We don't at present, but you're right. That is the next piece because you can get the prescription. You know that the provider prescribed it. You know that the pharmacy started to fill it. But if without the pharmacy connected, we don't know if it was picked up or not. So that is an opportunity for us. One way we want to try to address it, we were fortunate enough to receive some funding from the Office of the National Coordinator to expand our health information exchange. And when we were expanding it, as you've heard, we've connected providers. We still connect providers because you're, you're never done. And we're connecting hospitals and we've got the major hospitals on. We're working on the rural hospitals. But there are other caregivers that are not connected. And one of the most important pieces of the puzzle is the patient themselves. And so we've been asked by patients as we've talked about the health information exchange, you are an aggregator of data. You're an aggregator of data from disparate sources. Why can't I see that? And so one of the pieces that we plan to fund with this grant is what we call a patient portal into the HIE so that they can see their own data. They can see their medication list and they can actually provide input on reconciling that medication list, adding maybe some over-the-counter medications that they just added to their regular routine so that that is available and even more robust information is available for the provider that may care for them in the future. What would happen would be that all of the patients that desired to do so would you know, be able to log in, get a username and password, and then see all of the information that providers were uploading relative to themselves. That is correct. Right now, you can do it. Most providers will provide a portal into their data. Most hospitals will do that, and payers will typically give them a portal into their own claims data. But you do not have a portal that's aggregating all of the clinical data across disparate providers. So instead of signing on to, you know, a dozen different portals, you're able to to sign on to one. It's the same concept that we wanted for providers, all the data to be able to be accessed through one portal. As we're mentioning different stakeholders that currently don't have access to the HIE, you know, just simply because the first priorities were, were payers and providers, and we had talked about pharmacies, I can also think of other stakeholders, like, for example, long-term care or, you know, assisted living or, you know, there's a number of other players here that probably, you know, there's a lot of transitions of, of care between you know, for example, a hospital setting and an assisted living setting, do, do you see them either having access now or that that's another place to expand into? They have the ability to have access now. But what we did is uh, part of this grant we received will be used to connect long-term care. Um, Long-term care received transitions of care from the hospital, but many times not all the data is complete. So when that patient is transferred, they don't have the full record of what they need. So we're using a portion of this grant to pull together a hospital and uh, long-term care providers and help us understand the 
initial pieces that are needed to successfully make that transition of care and then help the hospital create that transition of care document so that that patient can be transitioned with accurate information, medication list, and whatever else the uh, long-term care needs to make sure that patient is brought into their facility and they're able to handle it. I mean, their goal is to get that patient to healing and make sure that patient doesn't get readmitted. And so the more information they can have for that care transition, the better they'll be able to help that patient. You know, one thing I had not had an inkling of is that, you know, everyone always complains about long-term care and how behind in technology they are. And and I don't know what I attributed that to, but I, I was speaking with someone who a light bulb went off in my head, who said that long-term care facilities were not eligible for all of the EHR and technology grants that providers were, which I, that didn't even occur to me. So just simply that long-term care is, you know, one of the reasons why very few of them have EHR is that they're, you know, they're, like I said, they're not eligible for any of the grants or, or reimbursement. It, is that something that you need to be taking into consideration as you try to do these linkages that you're going to have some of these stakeholders that are way behind the others relative to the technology that they employ? Absolutely. But I will tell you, the long-term care, and I've just met with a couple of, of the more uh, larger ones in our valley, uh, in our community, they actually do have an electronic health record and they actually have tried to keep up with technology, mainly because they found that it would help them in their care delivery. But you are right. They did not receive the incentives. And so part of the reason we wanted this grant was that we could help them get connected. We could help them if they're missing some technology. We could help them with that transition of care that's coming from the hospital, help transform that so that they can bring it into their health record. They may not be able to bring in the standard that we're used to, the CCD, HL7 CCD, but if we can transform it to a part that they can consume and use it in their electronic health record, they'll have that information from the hospital to make that transition. But on top of that, you know, we have other entities that were ineligible for the incentive programs. And that was what this grant was also focused on. One of it is the emergency medical staff. When the ambulance is making a charge to your home, at that point, um, they have some brief information from the dispatch, but that is all. If they could have the medical record, so they also have a list of the medications, they will do some initial care there. If they have that background, they can provide good care. And then as they complete their work, they push, they actually have a document that if that could be pushed to the emergency room and pushed for it, uh, it to be a part of that patient's medical record at the hospital, again, you've got a good transition of care. Data is being shared and is available as that patient's been treated in both those areas. You're bringing up stakeholders, which I don't hear 
brought up that often, but you're absolutely right. The emergency personnel that are in, you know, in ambulances and then also, you know, as you said, the the LTC, which actually gets brought up a lot. <laughs> That's yeah, not a good does. example. But yes. then but then, you know, the patient themselves, you know, like there's a, a number of different stakeholders in this continuum that may or may not necessarily have, you know, in quotes, an EHR system, but it's very important. Obviously, they're, they're quintessential in if we're going to say that we have all this data aggregated and it's a hub for, for data, you can't ignore some of these stakeholders. One other that we're working on that you don't hear about much is the Poison Control Center. Poison Control Center um, typically will get called and then they'll direct the patient to the emergency room. If the Poison Control Center, again, could have information and then push that information to the emergency room so the emergency room can include that in their record, again, that transition of care, it's just so much more smoother. They're good to fax or maybe try to call up the emergency room. But again, that's not part of the patient record. You really want to make sure that now that we have this technology, let's use it and make sure that all of these endpoints that are treating the patient are able to bring that data into their system and have it part of their record. Okay, so moving on to another question that I have been harboring for for uh, a couple of months here. Okay. So not from a technical standpoint, but just, you know, like glossary definition, what's a HISP? <laughs> a HISP is a health information service provider. And what they do is they provide what we call direct secure messaging. Direct secure messaging, as I define it, is like encrypted email on steroids. It's encrypted as it goes through the transport, but each endpoint is actually authenticated. And we, and this, I apologize, it's getting a little technical, but we actually attach a security certificate that identifies that endpoint. So it is a real secure means of transporting, especially clinical data. It allows one endpoint to transport clinical data, knowing for sure who they're sending to and knowing that it's totally encrypted in between. An example that we use quite frequently is back to your favorite, long-term care. Long-term care have to prior authorize services with Medicaid in particular. And to prior authorize them, they have to include medical records and substantiate the need for that care for payment. They use the direct secure messaging protocol to transport or send that prior authorization. That ensures the security of the data, and it also ensures that that's going to the endpoint, the Medicaid endpoint. And is this something that both endpoints have to be registered with the HIE? Or, for example, say I'm registered with the HIE, I can go in, I can get this, you know, obviously HIPAA-protected data, and I want to send it to somebody random. Does the HISP enable me to export the data in that way? The nice thing about the HISPs, and we are HISP as well as an HIE, is that they do provide and use standard protocol. So if another entity is using a different HISP, we just connect with that HISP. 
And it is because, again, of the security. We do do a little technical connection where we exchange certificates to make sure, trust anchors to make sure we can communicate. But that exchange and that process takes less than a day. And then we can talk to each other. We actually bring that HISP's addresses. It's like a big email address book onto our directory and vice versa so that they can talk to each other and not necessarily belong to the same HISP. It almost becomes, you know, like the old AOL or something where everyone had to be on the same email network in order to send an email. You know, basically, if I want to send a secure clinical message to somebody else, I need to get them locked in, you know, to get them verified. But then once I get them verified with your HISP, for example, I can send them, we can communicate back and forth with patient information. That is exactly right. Another project we're trying to do, what we are trying to stand up next year, is that same concept with HIEs. Now, we are a public HIE, a community HIE, and we're bringing many of the disparate sources together. But we have patients that go to Idaho or Idaho patients that come to Utah. And so we need to get connected and and we want to get connected in that same way that HIST are connected. You don't have to belong to our HIE. You can belong to the Idaho HIE, but then the Idaho provider can still communicate with the Utah provider. So you're kind of making the HIEs themselves interoperable with each other. That is exactly right, because patients are mobile. And on the East Coast, we know we have the same, you know, the snowbirds going to Florida. It does not occur to me that there's a West Coast version of that. So it's Idaho and Utah. We have um, some centers of excellence here in Utah, a cancer center, transplant centers. So we do have Idaho and Wyoming folks that will come to Utah for those acute services and then go back home for the follow-up care. We also, it's interesting, in southeastern Utah, our Moab area, where we have all the beautiful arches on Canyonlands, they will seek services in Colorado in Grand Junction. And so we have these border areas that are going to go across the border. And just because the HIE doesn't go there doesn't mean that the patient shouldn't be able to have their data follow them. You probably know more about demographics than you ever thought you would, right? That's exactly right. It is learning the referral patterns of the providers and, and where they are normally referring to. Is there anything, this has been very enlightening, Teresa, is, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you want to make sure, you know, is there something you're excited about that, that I did not query you on? I think one more thing and one more huge hurdle that we are working on and with the help of the Office of the National Coordinators Grant is working to help behavioral health and physical health providers coordinate care. And there typically is a roadblock for behavioral health because of some laws, 42 CFR, that require some special specific consent. And so we would like to see that be able to be coordinated and integrated. Many times when you have a very chronic disease, even such as diabetes, you seek behavioral health services as well. And these providers need to be able to coordinate plans 
together and be able to share data. So one of the initiatives we are working on is seeing trying to get that integration and that data flowing with the appropriate permissions from the patient. If someone is interested in learning more about UHIN, where can they seek that info? They can go to our website, which is uhin.org. We have contact information in there, and they are welcome to contact us directly, and we'd be glad to provide information. As a not-for-profit, our goal is to see improve the quality of care and reduce the cost. And so we are very open to share what we can to help this happen in all areas of the country. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you, Stacy. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.